Welcome to the Way Community Podcast. Here you'll find various teachings and messages from within our community and also from guest speakers. If you're interested in finding out more about us, visit our website, the-way.com.au. We pray that this episode edifies you. Alrighty, so we have been through looking at the righteous revelation, uh, righteous resurrection of believers. And we learned how the believer gets resurrected to no judgment, which is, yes, I know, that's to be celebrated. I know, I know that for some that has been a wonderful releasing revelation to know that we are, when we face God, we don't turn up to, uh, as, as someone said to me, there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but under the table, he's going to get you, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not like that, right? We, we are made righteous. And so when we step into heaven, all of the, the unuseful works of our life are burned up as if going through a firewall as we pass from this realm into the next. And then when we face him, he puts a laser beam across your life and he digs into every little nook and cranny of who you are just trying to find a reason to reward you not to cut you down, not to judge you, but to reward you. And so we can face up before him and and say, go for it, Jesus. My righteous judge, search me and make sure I get everything that I deserve because it's all going to be good. That's a wonderful thing. So when is that going to happen? Well, for us, it could be any moment. It could even be now. (laughs) <laughs> or now. Yeah, could be any moment. There's nothing stopping the return of Jesus for his church coming at any moment. It's what we call the doctrine of imminency. And while we understand that he could come at any moment, we also understand the time in which we're living and as we look at what's taking place in the world around us and we, we, we see Bible prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes, we understand the lateness of the hour, dare I say, the minutes that we are living in of the, the, the final minutes of this age. So... The fact that we are seeing Bible prophecy being fulfilled means that the the, uh, catching away of the church, the harpazo, the rapture, is truly, truly imminent. How imminent, Todd? Well, I, I genuinely believe that we may well be the generation that will be, as First Thessalonians 4 puts it, we who are alive and remain. So that's really exciting. Last week we talked about something that, the, the, oddly enough, so much of the church doesn't want to know about the rapture, but looks forward with eager anticipation for the second coming. And we had a look at the second coming 
and came to the conclusion it's very, very bad. <laughs> it's not a nice experience and I think, in fact, we all went home and had a little cry after just looking at the scriptures around it and realising how truly terrible that, what, as the scripture calls it, that great and terrible day when Jesus comes back not as the suffering servant, not as the sacrificial lamb, but comes back as the conquering king and the roaring lion. Who is this who comes up out of Bosra with his robes dipped in blood? I, I alone have treaded out the winepress of the people. It's, it is truly a, a terrifying thing that takes place on the day of the second coming. So with all that in place, what we're going to have a look at tonight, as I said, is we're going to put these two concepts, the rapture and the second coming, into the boxing ring. We're going to put the rapture in the blue corner. We're going to put the second coming in the red corner. And we're going to let them go for it. And we're actually going to have a look at the, the nature and the attributes of these two cataclysmic events. And I do want to say cataclysmic because I am what they call a dispensationalist. Now, if you're wondering what that is, that's a big term that, that means that I see throughout history the way in which God interacts with humanity does in fact change. And that when these changes take place, it is marked by cataclysm. So uh, let me give you an example. God said, let there be light. And what happened? Bang! Cataclysm. As the universe as we know and understand it came into being and he created a perfect cosmos. In the midst of that, he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And there was a whole bunch of beautiful trees and flowers and chirping birds, and it was all very nice. There was one tree, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he said, just don't touch that one. We all know the story. Adam and Eve, they eat of the tree and we have a cataclysm. What's the cataclysm that takes place? Sin enters the world. Humanity is broken from its perfect relationship with its creator. Adam and Eve are cast out and from that point on, this beautiful, perfect world Starts, a, starts what we now call the second law of thermodynamics, which is everything is winding down. And in amongst that was not just the, the perfect genetic makeup of humanity and all of creation, that started winding down, but also man's morality started winding down pretty quickly <laughs> and... Um, it, their interaction even with uh, the 
the fallen beings, all of that started to take place to the point that the, the world had become so corrupted and, uh, you know, maybe one night I'll get into how that's actually a genetic statement, not a mor- morality statement, that God decided he had to do something about this to restore his creation and so we have another cataclysm known as... The flood, that's right. From there, we enter into the period known as the patriarchs and the law, and God begins restoring his relationship with humanity through putting together a people who he, he initially, he wanted all mankind to be in relationship with him. They wouldn't do it. So then he decided he would create for himself a people who would be priests to the rest of the world. They were the Jews, but they wouldn't do it. So he ended up taking a tribe. He called them the Levites. And it was their job to be priests to the nation that he had called, who were supposed to be priests to the world that he had called. But they wouldn't do it. (laughs) And so... After 400 years of silence, of being sick to death with their carry-on, he sends his, the, the high priest of heaven, his one and only son, comes, born of a virgin, lives, and we have another cataclysm, which is, now you would say, well, yes, the crucifixion, yes, but the greatest cataclysm on that day was the separation of the Godhead. When, when father and son were separated by sin and we have one of the greatest cataclysms in all of, all of human history. But that cataclysm put in place the ability for us by the blood of Jesus Christ to come into relationship with him and we enter into what we now call the age or the dispensation of Grace, that's right. We're in the time of grace um, or the time of the church and this dispensation too will end. And like all of the other dispensational changes, it is going to end in cataclysm. Now, what that cataclysm is, That's a little bit of what we are going to pick apart tonight and help you get your head around. So we're tonight, we're going to look at 16 differences between the rapture and the second coming. Now, for those who who have been through the previous sessions, whether you've been here in, in our meetings or you've been listening to the podcast, You've probably got a whole string of scriptures that um, help you get the, the characteristics of these two great events. We're not going to review the scriptures tonight. What we're going to do is just look at the characteristics to kind of help measure the, these differences. And, and of course, those of you who have looked at all the scriptures are going to be sitting there going, yep. Yep, that's right. I agree with that. Yes. For those of you who, who haven't seen it all yet, you, go, you might be going, ah, 
I thought that was part of, you know, and you might be struggling a little bit with the ideas, but uh, sessions one to four will have painted out for you what we're talking about on this, all right? So let's have a look at these 16 differences. So first of all, in the rapture of the church, the rapture, the harpazo, the catching away, what we see taking place in that event is the translation of believers. Translation, the catching up, the catching away of believers. In the second coming, what we see is no translation, no changing of, of believers, no event that actually involves the believers being glorified, raised from the dead, um, uh, translated into heaven. Not, none of the scriptures that talk about the second coming mention that event. All right? So you've got the idea of the game now. This is what we're doing, putting it head to head. In the rapture, we see that the saints go up. Can anyone give me the probably the primary scripture for that event? Anyone? Anyone? Beulah? Yep, First Thessalonians 4, that's right. There's another song. Yes. Oh, Terry singing it in the background, is that right? <laughs> in the second coming, while in the rapture we have the saints going up, in the second coming it's described to us that, and I have made the point here of it is the angels that are coming down. I thought, I thought the church came back with, with Jesus. We had an extensive period of time last week showing, uh, what was it, about eight or nine verses from the Old Testament that tell us that when Jesus returns, he would return with 10,000 and thousands and thousands of his angels. And all throughout the Old Testament, it states that. And then suddenly we're supposed to accept that it, there's a flip, that now this is the church at the end. And it's like, well, again, with all these things, you, you do have to look at the full counsel of Scripture. And the fact that it's angels everywhere else and it's indeterminate about who these are that come with him, it just says thousands of his, of his hosts well, every time we see those hosts in the Old Testament, it's angels. So it stands to reason that those same hosts are angels again. So saints go up, angels come down. Third, the scriptures about the rapture there is nothing in those that talk about the earth being judged. So the earth is not judged. The scriptures on the second coming, the earth is judged in terrible fashion. Truly horrifying. 
says that in that day, men will be as scarce as the gold of Ophir. I don't know how scarce that is, but obviously the writer thought that was pretty scarce. Number four, the rapture is imminent. Imminent means it could happen at any moment, even now. One day I'll do that and get it right, I reckon. <laughs> if I do it enough, like now. Yeah. Tell you what, when I hear come up here, I'm going to go now. <laughs> All right, so the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any time. The second coming only occurs after many, many foretold events. The tribulation and the, the beasts and the antichrists and the horses and the flying scorpions and the, <laughs> there's all these things that uh, come before this great and terrible day. The, the big one, Armageddon, has to happen. It happens immediately precedes. So Without that war, the second coming can't happen. Uh, I know of a story, Chuck Missler tells it, of a friend of his who had a, a post-tribulational friend and each day he would go into work and he would say to him, oh, too bad, so sad, Jesus cannot come today because his friend believed that all these other things had to happen before he could be raptured. So I used to tease him by saying, too bad, so sad, Jesus can't come today. <laughs> I, I thought that was funny. <laughs> but for us, well, for me, because I believe in imminence, the rapture could happen at any moment, even now. All right, next. Number five. The rapture is not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. And why? Why is it not mentioned in the Old Testament? Can anyone give me an answer? That's right, isn't it? Because there's no church in the Old Testament. Because the rapture is for the church, it stands to reason that we don't have any scripture about the rapture in the Old Testament because it was hidden. It's hidden just like we were hidden until that time that we were revealed. The second coming, however, is predicted in every book of the Old Testament. Some whole books are devoted to the subject, like um, you know, books like Zechariah, just chock-a-block full. Number six, the rapture involves only believers. The only ones that are directly impacted by it, the whole world, I believe, is going to be indirectly impacted. Anyone who has been around to see all the old rapture movies with cars, you know, the drivers disappearing and pilots disappearing. And, well, um, there are those that believe that the event could actually cause a global EMP as well, which would be pretty devastating. 
uh, electromagnetic pulse. Basically, drop the world back into the Stone Age on the way out. Yeah. Mm. So it'd be pretty rough. But in any case, the rapture only involves believers, while the second coming involves all men and women on the earth. And I won't say um, not including believers, definitely not including the church, I believe, because we'll already be gone. But everyone on the earth will be affected by the second coming. And from what we read last week, no one will be excited about it. Not even the Jews. What did it say about them? That they, every man would go to, Zechariah tells us, every man will go to the corner of his own house and weep bitterly like they've lost their firstborn son as they realize that they crucified their Messiah. Yeah. Number seven. The rapture occurs before the day of wrath. Um, the day of wrath is a generalized term for what specific event or string of events outlined in Scripture? The, the Great Tribulation, the, seven, the time of Jacob's trouble, um, the, the 70th week of Daniel, it's got many names, but among them is the Day of Wrath. And the second coming concludes the Day of Wrath. Now you might go, well, Todd, that's your conjecture. Well, all of this is my conjecture. You're asking me the question I'm telling you, right? Um, but... After we've gone through these, I'm going to spell out for you why I believe that those two statements, that the rapture occurs before the day of wrath and the second coming concludes the day of wrath. Number eight, the rapture has no reference or as scriptures around the rapture make no reference to Satan because it's all about the church. But the second coming tells us that part of the event is Satan being bound for a thousand years. Now, there are those that believe that Satan has already been bound. Yeah. And he's been bound and chained and put in the bottomless pit already. If that's the case, I think his chain is too long. <laughs> That's right. Yes, because people do need deliverance. Yep. Deliverance is a thing. It's real. Number nine. In the rapture, Jesus comes for his own, the church. In the second coming, we are told that he comes with his own. And as we've, we've specified, in his angels. So in the rapture, he comes for us. In the second coming, he comes with the angels. Very different. Number 10. In the rapture, he comes in the air. 
in the second coming, he comes to the earth. Now, many people will say, well, Todd, it's called the second coming, and just because Jesus doesn't come to the earth, um, you know, if, if he still has come. So doesn't that prove then that your theory is wrong? No, it just proves that the name, the second coming, is wrong. Do you understand what I mean? The second coming is not a thing. What we are told, the angels, when, when they see Jesus going up, the disciples are watching Jesus go up, the angels appear. What do they say to, to the disciples? What do the angels say to the disciples as they're watching Jesus go up in the clouds? Sorry, say it nice and loud. Exactly. So the angels are telling them that there will come a day that he will return to the earth the same way that you saw him go, which is in the clouds. Now, when Jesus comes for his church, he doesn't do what we see in the book of Zechariah with his feet touching the Mount of Olives and it's splitting in two and what we read in Ezekiel and Isaiah and what we read in Revelation. None of that takes place in this event when he comes for his church. But that doesn't mean that, it, that we've got a wrong idea because someone decided to call when Jesus comes to the earth, the second coming. That is a term that's been invented to name that event. It's just, it's actually unhelpful because it's skewed people's perspectives on the, the many returns that Jesus has already had and is having. And if you don't believe me, and you want me to wrap some scripture around it, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Okay? People say, well, you know, it says that he won't come back until you see him come again. Yes, that's right. In physical form, he will return to the earth in physical form on the clouds. But that does not mean that he's here because how many of you would say, Jesus is in my heart? Yep. Okay, John had a vision of Jesus and where was he when he had the vision? On the island of Patmos. So either his, his, his vision was wrong and everything we read in Revelation is a lie or Jesus was there but he had not fulfilled the promise of coming in the clouds in physical form and touching the earth. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So the whole concept of the inverted commas second coming is in that kind of sense a dangerous term because it actually brings confusion about or, or boxes the activity of Jesus in to a place that won't allow for people to accept that Jesus is fully, totally interacting with us and with the earth right now, today. How many, how many Muslims have seen visions of Jesus? 
Oh, well, that must all be a lie then. Do you understand what I'm saying? Of course Jesus is here. Of course he's interacting, just like the Holy Spirit is. He's still playing an integral role in the the body of Christ, in, in the church, in history, but it's different to what's going to take place when he does return in the clouds and he comes as king. Am I making sense? All right, very good. Let's move on. Number 11. Yeah, exactly. All righty, number 11. When the rapture takes place, he claims his body. Ready for this one? When he comes for his second coming, he claims his bride. There we go. That's a provocative statement, and that's probably one to um, my, my, my book, which will come out eventually. Stop trying to put me in a dress. We'll address this question. <laughs> yeah, I've already got a title for it. Stop trying to put me in a dress. Do you think that's a good provocative? Yeah. Coming to all good Christian bookstores. <laughs> Number 12, with the rapture, only his own see him. With the second coming, every eye shall see and call on the rocks to fall on them to protect them. Right? It's... There's not going to be anyone dancing through the streets. He's here. He's here. No, it's not going to be like that at all. Everyone will be terrified and those believers that are alive will be crawling out from under the rocks they've been hiding under. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a great day. It is a great and terrible day. It's not a good day. Number 13, the Great Tribulation begins... Um, after the rapture has taken place, I will say it like that because I don't believe that the rapture triggers the Great Tribulation. I believe that the rapture takes place before the tribulation. And again, I'm going to explain why in a moment. And with the second coming, after the second coming, the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, the millennium begins. The rapture heralds the tribulation, the second coming heralds the millennium. Number 14, church age, believers only are caught up in the rapture. In the second coming, church age believers are not mentioned at all. And you go, well, so where are they? We've got to get into that in a minute. But the rapture, church age believers, it, it involves the church, us, church age, age of grace, dispensation of grace. But the second coming, those people are not mentioned. Basically, after Revelation chapter 4, we're out of the picture. End of chapter 3. We're out of the picture. Middle of chapter three, if I really get specific. 
15. When the rapture takes place, the church rejoices. We all go, woohoo, it's party time. That is the response for believers. When the second coming takes place, the Jews and the nations mourn. And we looked last week at scripture after scripture that pointed it out. Nobody celebrating when Jesus returns. I mean, there will be a few. There'll be a few people saying, oh, thank God. I mean, literally, thank God it's over. But for the vast majority on the world, this will spell their doom the day that Jesus appears in great and terrible power. And lastly, those taken are gathered to Jesus. In the rapture, those who are harpazoed, those who are snatched up and snatched away are caught up, as First Thessalonians 4 tells us, to be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words, we're told. It's an encouragement. Remember, you can't, the moment's coming when you're going to be snatched up. So encourage each other with this. With the second coming, those who are taken are cast into hell. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. And that is a very different catching up with a very different end. So as you can see, we've got two very, very different events. And we, as we outlined over the previous two sessions, we went through all the scriptures and looked at the rapture and, and characterized it by what we see in our rapture list. And then we looked at all the scriptures on the second coming we, we see that the, the characteristics of the second coming are totally different to that of the rapture. And you can't put these things together. They, it's oil and water. It doesn't mix. You can't have in the one event the believers coming up or the saints going up and the angels going down. Are you understanding what I'm saying? They're different. You can't have the one event snatching up all the believers of the earth to glory and at the same time snatching all of the, the non-believers off into hell. I mean, that means the whole place is left empty, right? It's, it, they are totally different events. So what I want to do is have a look at why I believe that the rapture is a pre-tribulational event and why they use that term Maranatha. Encourage each other with this. And I, I want to say that if your end times perspective causes you to feel fear or anxiety, then there is something fundamentally wrong with what you are believing. That should be of, if, of anything. The nature and the attributes of God 
the nature of the fact that the Holy Spirit was sent as what? What was his name? The comforter, right? The, if, if your perspective on what is coming gives you dread and fear, that tells me that there must be something wrong. And it's worth going and having a look to maybe find out why. All right? You know, now, it's like, this is a terrible way to put it, but who's ever walked into your house and go, I smell dog poo? Right? It's like, that somewhere there's dog poo. Everybody check your shoes. Is, is, it, is it only our family has been through this one? No one can relate? Yeah? You're, you're with me on this, right? And the, the, the sniff of that stuff tells you there is something very, very wrong right now. Right? And we, we need to deal with this with great haste. And caution, <laughs> right? So if, the, if there is the whiff of fear and dread in what you believe about the future, there's something very wrong. So I want to share with you why I believe that the rapture of the church is pre-tribulational. We're going to unpack that now. So first of all, the Lord promised to deliver us in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. We're going to have a look at this scripture together. And before I bring it up, can anyone tell me what that scripture might be? Does anybody know it? I mean, see, this is the thing. These scriptures, these are amazing scriptures, and they don't get touched. You're doing good. Let me, I'll give you a hint. If it's chapter 2 or chapter 3, then it's what? The letters, the letters to the seven churches. That, that's right. Chapter 3, verse 10, we're talking about the end. Does any know, anyone want to have a guess at which church it might be? <laughs> the first one. No, it's not the first one. The first one is Ephesus. No, it's the second to last, and it's the church of... Oh, gee, I can tell I'm going to have to do this in times course, darling. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. All right. Now, let's have a read of it together. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from... Now, I want you to hear the words... The great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Now, I want you to see, if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app with you, get Revelation 3 in front of you, and I want you to see what he's actually saying here. He's talking to a church a good church. The Philadelphian church was one of only two churches where Jesus had nothing bad to say to them. Okay? And they're the church of love. They, they have great love for one another. And he says to them, because you have obeyed my command 
to persevere. Why might you think that they have to persevere? Could it be that they're facing trial and trouble and trauma and and persecution? Do you think that might be part of the equation for them? You see, every single one of us are promised, promised persecution and trials and troubles. But just because the government thinks you're a bad person doesn't mean the 70th week of Daniel has started. That's what you have to understand. Just because you are going through the trials and troubles and persecutions that Jesus promised that you, yes, you, were going to have doesn't mean (coughs) that the time of Jacob's trouble has begun. I haven't seen any, I haven't seen, I haven't seen any flying scorpions. That's right. Okay, <laughs> so, yeah, or, or wormwood falling from the sky or anything like that. All right, so just because you're being persecuted. Now, understand, I am not diminishing our brothers and sisters in China, in North Korea or, or anything like that. Yes, there are people that are suffering terrible persecution. But it's not the day of wrath. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is just what was promised. And thank God that right now in this little space, you and I suffer persecution that sounds like, oh, I don't like them. They offend me. Okay. Praise the Lord that that is our persecution right now. Okay, so, but because someone says, I'm offended by you, doesn't mean the flying scorpions are about to appear. Am I, am I making sense? All right. And this is what he's saying. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from trials and troubles and persecutions. From the great time of testing that will come upon a few people in the world, a little corner of the planet, the whole world. world. See, see, this is the thing. People in North Korea are brothers and sisters. And right now, Lord, we pray for all of our brothers and sisters in North Korea. They say that there's 70,000 of them that are locked up for their faith right now. So, Father, as we remember them, we remember to pray for them. We pray blessing on them. Change the nation of North Korea, Lord, and let your people in that nation be set free. Let your word run wild in North Korea. We believe and pray for them together in Jesus' name. But despite the fact that they are under tremendous persecution, that it is not happening in the whole world. And I want you to see what is this time of testing and trial that comes on the whole world? Who is it for? Those who belong to the world. Let me ask you, do you belong to the world? No. Who are you as far as the world's concerned? Strangers, aliens, foreigners, You are just passing through. 
So he's saying, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come on the whole world to test those who belong to the world. That is not you and me. So if there is going to be a great time of testing that is for those who belong to the world and we don't belong to the world, the only way that that great time of testing can come on the whole world is if we are not on the world. Does that make sense? I convinced one person. That's good. So maybe we better have a look at some other stuff. Um, so just a few things on this. Uh, the passage refers to a future event. I want you to notice that the church of Philadelphia has long since disappeared, but this letter is still written for all of us and there's a promise in it that has, has yet to be fulfilled which is about a trial coming on the whole world. And it's interesting that, that the, the word ek literally means to be taken out of, right? So there, this scripture is actually saying we will literally be taken out of. Now, what is really interesting about the seven churches is if you go and study the characteristics of the seven churches, you will find that it actually matches up with the characteristics of the historical church for the last 2,000 years. It's just very interesting. If, if the letter had have been written in, or those letters had been placed in any other order, it would not match up with the history of the church throughout the last 2,000 years, and yet it does. And uh, should I get around to doing my big course on in times, I'll be able to unpack that for you.